Tonight's New Testament reading is from Ephesians 5, 15 through 33. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself his, its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, would you join me in prayer? Father, we come to you as a very needy group of people, a people that uh, have longings in our hearts that can only be met by you. Thank you for speaking a word that's alive. Thank you that you can accomplish your purposes even through a flawed vessel. And we ask that you would do that, and our faith demands that we thank you in advance. In Christ's name, amen. Tonight we're going to wrap up our series that we've been looking at about what it means to live a life that's led by God's Spirit. And we've looked at many things, but I wanted to take a couple weeks and look at um, relationship calling. And so a few weeks ago we talked about singleness. And if you haven't listened to that sermon, whether you're married and single or single, I'd rather uh, stop right now and say listen to that first, but we can't do that. Uh, but I'd like you to listen to that if you have time. But tonight we're going to focus on marriage and how we understand that. I came across a somewhat startling statistic that said, as they've looked at over 144 years of marriage, we're now at the lowest rate of marriage. People are getting married less now, as you look over 140 years, 44 years. That might not surprise some of you here. And then, the age of 
marriage has also gone up. So you have uh, men getting married now about the age of 29 and women getting married about the age of 27. That's been creeping up for a while. There was an opinion piece in the Washington Post not too long ago, and it was written by someone who was saying that a third of millennials now live at home with their parents, and so they're not reaching what you would call normal benchmarks or milestones of someone that's moving into adulthood, such as having a house or getting married and having children. This was according to the article. And there's lots of theories for why this stuff is happening. Uh, some people would say with the younger generation, it would be uh, maybe it's helicopter parenting, right? You were just sort of over-parented. Uh, it may be idealism. One of the things that it certainly seems to be in the minds of folks is money. Um, there was a Pew poll that was done, and they asked women, what are you looking for? and a potential husband, and the answer that topped the list was a secure job, uh, financial security. The National Marriage Project that runs out of UVA confirms this when it basically found that despite socioeconomic difference or race, money seems to be a big factor why people are no longer getting married. Now, take all of that and add our city uh, people typically, when they move to Washington, don't move to D.C. to get married, right? They move here for a career or they move here for a post-college experience. And so all these things, as they swirl around in your mind, in my mind, lead me to the question, but how do people of faith think about this stuff? If you're someone that claims to know God and be in relationship with Jesus Christ, as Christians profess to do, how do you think about marriage in light of these factors? When Meg and I got married, uh, our combined income was $24,000. Uh, we were interns at a church. And about a year and a half after we got married, we then went off to grad school and paid for that while we were working through grad school. And I remember asking for her hand from her father, who is a CPA, an accountant. And he said, how uh, are you going to support my daughter? And I knew enough not to say we'll live off love. Um, but my response was, well, I guess we're expecting God to provide for us. And I will say after the last 25 years, God has done that. Even though we got married with very little money. To me, this is one example of how the scripture itself makes us think differently about approaching marriage than the day that we're in, the culture, the curious time that we're in. And so I want to turn to this passage and simply look at the big picture questions of what is the purpose of marriage? How do we think about that differently? And what are the respective roles? Now, my biggest struggle with this thing is trying to cram what should be five or six sermons into one. So I'm sure there are going to be questions that you feel like, you know, he didn't hit that question, he didn't go into enough depth there, and I'll just say yes ahead of time. But uh, my desire is that hopefully we can hit the big questions. Now, first of all, the purpose of marriage. While love and companionship and financial security and kids may be motives for getting married, the scripture says that the primary motive for getting married is so that God might teach you what it's like to be married to him. 
Earthly marriage, its primary purpose, is to understand spiritual marriage with God. A couple weeks ago, I quoted Sam Alberry, who's a single man, a pastor. And uh, he was talking about singleness, and he said something really insightful, that singleness talks about the sufficiency of the gospel or the sufficiency of being in spiritual marriage with God. The trajectory, the way that history is pointed, when we finally get to heaven, there'll be no more marriage. But rather, God will be with his people, and they will be together and united, and the relationship will be consummated. So Alberry would say singleness is actually a model of that day to come. It's an anticipation that that's where we'll land. But what about marriage? I would say then marriage is a model of what that heavenly marriage might look like. Earthly marriage is a model of what that marriage ought to look like. That marriage with God, our lover. And this is what's on Paul's mind. You notice he concludes his, this entire section by quoting Genesis 2 and saying this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Everything that I've just told you about marriage, I'm saying it's ultimately about Christ and his relationship with believers. And so, earthly marriage is an analog of the Son of God and his people. Now, this isn't unique to Paul. If you look at the Bible, this theme runs all the way throughout the Bible. You could go to the book of Ezekiel, and you find um, God speaking to Israel as if she is a woman that he has married. You can go to the prophet Hosea, where Hosea was actually instructed to marry a woman who would be faithless, so God could say, this is what it's like being married to you. Now, some people have said that God has been in the worst long-standing marriage in all of history with us. So this is something that you know God speaks about in the Scripture. You go to the book of Revelation, it all ends with a wedding feast between Christ the groom and the bride, his church. Yesterday I came across this quote from the late, great Charles Spurgeon. He said, The spouse or church of Jesus is dear to his heart, precious in his sight, written on his hands and united with his person. On earth he exercises towards her all the affectionate offices of husband. He makes rich provision for her wants, pays all her debts, allows her to assume his name, and to share in all his wealth, nor will he ever act otherwise to her. The gospel tells us the story of the groom, the Son of God, who bears all the sorrows and sins of his bride, and he gives her everything that he has, his joy, his wealth, his righteousness. Now, if you're someone from outside the church, you might be going, this is really weird. I came here and I'm hearing a sermon about marriage, but what I'm really hearing is this idea about God relating to us almost like a lover. And that's because we've fallen so far afield of who God is really like. You know, we've been indoctrinated and inundated with this idea that God is removed and he's distant and he's a feelingless force. But the Christian faith says, no, far from that, God is the greatest lover you could know. He is the greatest lover in history. 
when you look at the way that he is related to people in his pursuit of them. And this love expresses itself in two ways in earthly marriage. First, oneness. The purpose of marriage being oneness. Uh, I was thinking back to that animated movie, Up. Has anybody seen that movie, Up? I'm hoping a few of you. Okay. If you haven't, just watch the first four minutes. I mean, you know, I watched it, I replayed it. You know, it shows this couple and they meet, right? And the first couple minutes, basically, you know, you're like crying and you're like, these, they're not, they're cartoons. I need, you know, they're animated. I need to stop. But it, it's so poignant. You know, they meet together and, and you see them building their friendship together. You know, they show up to this old messed up fixer-upper house and they paint their names in the mailbox and they look for faces in the clouds. You know, and they have a penny jar for what they want to save up. But with like every married couple, every time you get a little bit down the road for that trip you want to take or that's that dream house you want to have, you have to break the bank because the roof's leaking or the car breaks down. It steps through their lives until they grow old and they finally say goodbye, she dies, and the rest of the story goes on. It's basically just a beautiful picture of oneness, uh, of what everybody longs for. This idea of physical, emotional, spiritual oneness, complete nakedness, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, I can be completely who I am before you, naked, and I won't be ashamed. I won't be laughed at, I won't be scorned, I won't be disdained. You know, one of the studies on divorce has shown that one of the top indicators for divorce is contempt in a married couple. When a couple comes to the place where instead of delighting in that nakedness, they begin to have contempt for one another. And so companionship sits at the heart of this oneness. In the book of Proverbs chapter 2, there's a unique word used for spouse, which essentially we could translate special confidant or best friend. And so this vision for marriage is this relationship that does life together, everyday life together, because that's what God does with us. Now, here's the curious thing. Uh, today, there's, there's categories and names. If you take two people and they spend a ton of time together, they're confidants to one another, they help each other and give each other advice, they text each other all the time, they basically behave like they're marriage, but like they're married, they're called work spouse or friend spouse, right? Well, we have terms for this. But God has a term for it. It's just spouse. That's all it is. And so, you know, if I'm relating to someone, if you're relating to a brother or sister of Christ in a way where you're spending lots of time, you're, you're confident, you're in each other's lives, well, you might need to ask yourself the question, should I marry this person? Because it's probably not by happenstance they've been placed in your life. And the attraction that you share together, well, that's basically what marriage is. As one person has said, it's friendship spiked with romance. And so this is the kind of oneness that you see that God brings to us, but we we're so... We've drifted from that idea into an idealism. Let me read you a quote from uh, Tim Keller and Kathy Keller. They wrote a wonderful book called Meaning of Marriage. I'd encourage all of you to get it and read it. 
Uh, he says, both men and women today see marriage not as a way of creating character and community, but as a way to reach personal life goals. They are looking for a marriage partner who will fulfill their emotional, sexual, and spiritual desires. And that creates an extreme idealism that in turn leads to a deep pessimism that you will never find the right person to marry. Do you see what he's saying there? I was thinking, we've been watching uh, this show, Genius, uh, about the life and story of Albert Einstein, and it's really, really good. It's amazing. You see his gifts and his passion for life. But one thing is clear. When you marry him, you marry his job. In fact, the way the marriage goes how, it has to do with how you're supporting his goals to be you know, this brilliant, great scientist. And so it's this idea that I marry someone with an idealism so that they're going to complete me. And of course, this is really uh, a recipe for destruction for any marriage. Because basically what we have done is we've made this person into a potential god or goddess. You know, I, I've said this before, but you know, we circulate so much here. But if you think about your Mr. and Mrs. Wright list, however you write that Mr. Wright list or Mrs. Wright list, just bear in mind who the author is. It's you, right? It's what you understand to be the right thing for you. I will tell you something, that the longer I've been married, the more I see God's brilliance in giving me this woman. I would say my appreciation has only grown over the years. You know, I probably thought at that time I needed a brooding artist to be with me because I was sort of a brooding artist. I didn't need a brooding artist. You know, you don't need someone just like you. And so we have to hold that idealism very lightly and ask ourselves more foundational questions about, as I mentioned before, what does it look like? What does friendship, what does integrity, what does most importantly godliness look like in this person? So our oneness with this potential spouse really is secondary to the oneness that we have with God. And it's only as we begin to see our marriage, spiritual marriage with God, that we actually get a vision for an earthly marriage. Your earthly marriage will never rise higher than your spiritual marriage with God. And if the idea of marriage to you is just sort of like, eh, I live with it and live without it. You probably should ask yourself, what's wrong with my relationship with God? Because God actually thinks marriage is a beautiful thing. Now, it's not a calling for everybody. Singleness is a beautiful thing, too. Talked about that two weeks ago. But it's in terms of our indifference and cynicism, we need to look at that. But second of all, commitment. In verse 31, Paul quotes Genesis, where he talks about a man and a woman holding fast to each other. And later he describes what that begins to look like for the husband and wife. We'll get to that. And at the heart of this idea is a biblical theological word called covenant. Right? So Christian people don't enter into contracts. And their marriage isn't a license primarily. It's a covenant. That's a legal, permanent, binding, life and love bond together. This is the idea that God has. And it's, again, the way that God orders marriage with us. If you go to the book of Ezekiel again, chapter 16, you'll hear the Lord describe His relationship this way to Israel. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you, and I entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord, 
and you became mine. This is how God thinks about His relationship with His people. I saw you, I vowed to you, I entered a covenant with you, and then you became mine. We really can't ask someone to become mine unless we first enter into that covenant. And this has a couple implications. Uh, one would be uh, the covenantal nature of sex. I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, uh, but in the Christian understanding, oftentimes when God has covenants, He gives us physical signs so we'll understand them. Baptism, water, uh, God's uh, life given for us, the bread and the wine, His body and blood. In the marriage, we often think that the sign of the marriage is a ring, but that's culturally, you know, appropriate in some places. But the true sign of the marriage covenant is sex. That's what seals the covenant. That's the sign together. So as I've said before, you know, um, you know, husbands, if, if you're looking forward to a night of romance, you might say, hey, honey, let's have dinner and some covenant renewal. That was a joke, by the way. Uh, I know that I might lose you on some of this stuff, but it really is covenant renewal. That's why if someone commits adultery, uh, the, the injured spouse is allowed to break the covenant because the covenant has been broken. And so that means we have to understand the profound nature of sex. And there's no better quote I could find. And I have to keep going back to this quote. It's from the film Vanilla Sky, where Cameron Diaz says this. You know when you sleep with someone, your body makes a promise, whether you do or not. Right? I mean, that's just like, I can't say it any better. We might want to fool ourselves and say it doesn't matter. I can use sex however I want, but we know that's not the truth. And if you've engaged with someone that way and the relationship ended, you're not crazy if it felt like divorce. You're not crazy if you felt like you had a deep emotional scar. Amen, God can heal scars. He has in my life. and He leads us into something that's renewing. But the second thing as well, when we hear the idea of a vow, God proves His love. He puts His money where His mouth is with us. I mean, why does the Lord wake up day after day and stay with us and not leave? Why does the Lord keep forgiving us of our emotional and spiritual adultery? We'll return to a number of other things as our functional gods instead of Him. Why does God, when we feel terrible about ourselves and shame, still look at us as we're the apple of His eye? Why does God sing love songs over us? Why does the Lord see us His bride? Why will He not rest until He meets us in heaven and the relationship is consummated? It's because He gave His word. It's because of His vow. The covenant that He entered into. And so Christian marriage means in terms of commitment that marriage isn't desire-driven, it is promise-driven. It's not desire-driven, it is promise-driven. And so, you know, you don't need to expect to have all the feelings on the front end. Again, you know, you sort of look at things in some ways emotionally, but rationally. And go, what has God given me in this relationship with this man or woman that He's put before me? And what will it mean to live a life of faith? Because when people take vows, they don't say anything about the present. The traditional vows are the best vows. When people say, I want to write my own vows, I usually say, please don't. 
you know, be, because they won't be as good. And Meg and I wrote some of our vows, and I look back to them, and I'm like, yeah. and what do we know? We're, we're 26. What do I know about love? You know, you, know, you look hot. I, here I am, right? Right? We're gonna, this is going to be great. I mean, what do you know? You don't know anything. But the vows are all forward-looking, right? They're, I will. I will if we lose our bank account and money stresses us. I will if you get really, really sick. I will. I will. This is the Christian commitment of love. And that means that married couples are obligated, hold on to your seats, I'm about ready to spout some big heresy. Married couples are obligated to stay in love. It's your obligation to stay in love. We don't fall in and out of love. The book of Proverbs tells us, be captivated with your spouse. So that means every day, you have a job when you wake up. You pour over in your mind why this person is so much better than you. You pour over in your mind why you should be so humbled that they would ever say yes to you. And so how do couples keep it going for 10, 20, 40 years? It's because each of them are getting on their knees every day remembering what it's like for God to be married to us. He forgives me every day. He loves me every day. He delights in me every day. When I'm ashamed, He gives me His righteousness. That's what it is. But let's move now with the time we have to just break down these roles. I want to say two things about this. Before we get into the roles. The first thing is, these roles ingeniously deal with the unique sin patterns of men and women, husband and wives. So uh, when you go back to the first married couple and they turn away from God, they listen to the serpent, even in that moment something happens. And if you're, you, you know this account, you know it's true. Um, Adam is there and Eve is there. Adam is completely passive. He doesn't say anything while the tempter's tempting them. Now, Eve maybe at that point could have given him a kick in the rear end and said, say something, but she then moved into asserting. So you have passivity and asserting. And I mean, not in a good way, but a bad way. It's sort of controlling. And both the roles that we're going to talk about actually are antidotes for that. You know, it, this passage doesn't tell us everything about a husband and wife. You know, we'll get into this idea of respect. And you say, well, isn't, isn't the husband supposed to respect the wife? Yeah, go to First Peter and it says, honor your wives. But rather, I think we're getting at some fundamental things here. The second thing is this. All of it, all of it, comes under the broader theme of submission. And I think that is very important. The reason I included all that text, and you might have been going, why are we reading all this other stuff, is because I wanted you to get to verse 21. That marriage passage should never be read. You know, the original Greek doesn't have chapter headings. We stuck those in there. The marriage chapter should never be read without verse 21 where it says, submit all of you to one another. Submission rides over this entire passage. Submitting to one another out of reverence or respect for Christ. And so essentially, the wife is modeling what the church is to do in the marriage. 
And therefore, she's actually a model for the church of what they're supposed to look like. And what the husband is called to do, sacrificing himself, is also, you could say, a form of submission. Why? Because the church submits to Christ. This is the nature of the Christian community. We redeem the word submission. The way authority is done in the world, Jesus would say the the way the the, uh, world will do it is they lord authority over each other. But how does the Son of God with all authority on heaven and earth do it? He lays his life down. He submits to the Father. He even submits, in a sense, to those he loves as he washes the disciples' feet. The Christian church needs to recapture and redeem and make beautiful the idea of submission. Now sadly, the church has been part of what made it so ugly. But the kind of way Jesus does it is so beautiful. And so let's look at these two things together. Uh, And with the submission idea, I want to say on the front end as well, uh, the wife, although she is called to specifically model this, she is not called exclusively to do it. Everybody's called to do it. I've been making that point. Nor is the principle, like in traditional cultures, that all women are to act that way to all men. He says, to your own husband. It's a voluntary, covenantal decision that she enters into with one man. And the reason she does is because he as well has said, I will sacrifice myself. So this idea that all women should submit to all men, it ain't biblical. Never was. So, let's look at these two things. First of all, if I had to boil down what the wife's call is, it would be respectful empowerment. Respectful empowerment. Now, where do I get that? You go back to the book of Genesis, and the Lord says, I will create a helper complementary to the man. A helper complementary. Now, we hear that word helper, we think of mommy's little helper, but who else is described, who chiefly is described in the Bible as helper? Who? Who? The Holy Spirit, the God of Israel. Yeah, we're talking about God the helper. This is where we get the reference point. You can't help unless you've got power. Right? You can't be of help. So does the wife have power? Yes, she does. She has the power of God. She is being called to use her power to empower her husband so that he might fulfill his role of loving sacrifice. And so that means submission isn't be a doormat. It's not to have no opinions. You're two equals made in the image of God. We miss what the Scripture is saying. And submission is tied closely to this idea of respect. Paul begins his directions to the wife by talking about this idea of submission, but he ends by saying respect. There are a similar thing going on here. Now, how does it work? Um, The Scripture tells us that a man that has found a godly wife has found something more precious than jewels and lacks nothing of value. So if you have found a woman that loves Jesus, you have everything that you need. In fact, you have far more than you need. This is what God would say. And so naturally, the husband would desire her respect and aspire toward her respect. Respect is the tool in her toolbox that the husband desperately needs. And it is like super fuel for a husband, his wife's respect. And I can tell you that personally, and I can tell you that through years of counseling people. 
You know, women, if, if you want to see your husband as half a man, just withhold your respect from him. Now, the natural question is, does that mean I'm just supposed to give him universal respect? No. What he says is submit as to the Lord. This is about your greater husband. Meg had said to me, you know, when I struggle with one of your bad decisions, um, she didn't say it that way, but when I struggle with one of your decisions, she goes, it's really about me trusting the Lord. It's really about our relationship more than it is you and I. Can she trust God in that situation? So what's a practical way that this looks? Well, I, I think one of the ways it looks, uh, it, well, let's imagine there's a married couple and they have a couple kids and let's imagine that the father sometimes doesn't parent well. And so you're sitting at the table together and the father sort of really puts his foot in the mouth and begins to go down a bad road and everybody knows it's bad, but he doesn't stop. The wife at that point could choose to scold him at the table or she could say, hey, can I talk to you for a second in the kitchen? And then when they get in the kitchen, she says, what are you doing? Right, but the point is this. Even that moment saves the husband a little bit of respect. Yes, we're fragile creatures, you know. This idea of men needing respect. So there's a way that a woman can still be prophetic and bold, but artfully show respect to her husband. And of course, it never uh, applies to when he is violating God's commandments. Then of course, she must follow her greater husband, Christ. So, that's a little bit about the woman. And I go, I know I'm just, you know, I'm basically raising more snakes than I can kill. But here's the thing. I want to say that a wife's respect moves her husband out of passivity, out of fear, and she moves him into a strength whereby he can be who God has intended him to be for her and for the world. Tim Keller has this great quote where he says, uh, you know, even to say that, right? You know, you not often people say, Tim Keller has this terrible quote and terrible idea. You know, I'm going to find one and I'm going to do that. Uh, right? But, you know, he and Kathy have this great quote they do together that uh, basically says, you know, when your marriage is weak and your whole world's strong out there, you're still weak. But if your marriage is strong and your whole world's crumbling, you'll still be strong. And we know that's true. That's it's true with our relation with Christ. But moving on to husband, I gotta wrap this up. If we can boil down the wife's role to respectful empowerment, we're, we're gonna boil down the husband's role, loving sacrifice, and act of headship. Now, headship is this older concept. What does it mean? It's been much abused. Headship essentially, according to reputable Greek scholars, means responsibility. That's what headship means. Be responsible. Sin will lead husbands, again, into passivity. You see this regularly. The cliches come from somewhere, right? Maybe in your house growing up, mom had to engage with all the conflict, do all the discipline. You know, it's the husband that's like chooses to be distracted with his work instead of engaging in the relationship. A husband that is AWOL, absent without leaving. You know, really not present in conversations. Maybe you see little hints of it before, right? When, when the, I always pay attention when I'm uh, doing premarital with couples to see what the, hu the, the potential husband's attitude is toward marriage planning. 
Because if it's just sort of like, you know, I don't care, whatever she does, eyes roll. That's a bad sign. Because God has called him to be engaged. I will even say that a husband who is dominant and controlling is actually at his heart passive. The reason he's like that is because he can't deal with a bold and strong woman. So he basically has to shout her down, or if it worse, hit her down. And so husbands are called uh, to be responsible, to be active. Now, let me apply this in a sense to dating, okay? Because in Christian understanding of community, uh, the, the Lord leads through the man's heart. It doesn't mean the woman can't show her heart, but the, the man has a particular initiative that he's called to. And so, it is one thing, as I said two weeks ago, uh, guys, if you, are, if you feel a positive call to singleness, that's a beautiful and wonderful thing. But you never want to find yourself single because it's convenient or because, you know, life sort of works better and you can have intimate relationships with girls emotionally wise and maybe you get your sexual outlet somewhere else that God hasn't ordained or blessed. And so you find yourself actually in this very passive position and there's a burden that women bear, and I would say especially in this age, where Christian women also feel called to be married. But they can't do anything about it because they find that men aren't acting. And so they bear this burden, and I would say it puts them actually in a place of temptation that they shouldn't have to be in. It's interesting, when Adam and Eve have their blow-up, when God comes to talk, He doesn't speak to Eve, He speaks to Adam. And so I would say there's a certain obligation among men of that marrying age uh, to say, you know, if you're called to singleness, move ahead with that. But if you're not, you, you at least want to be praying and saying, how am I handling my relationships? But I also want to say for women, because there are men here that, of course, have pursued relationships and have been rejected multiple times. <laughs> I know because you know I, I really prayed about this I really prayed about this because uh, guys I don't want to you know it, it's sort of like so many of you have sat through marriage sermons and it's like you know whack-a-mole you don't even want to you don't want to put your head up because it's like boom here's the preacher boom here. listen you can hear my story I was passive afraid uh, long 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 okay and I also truly believe that God doesn't just reveal this stuff. There are men that are praying and seeking, and God hasn't revealed it yet. But at the, so at the same time, women, you need to ask yourself, you know, what am I looking for? Am I looking for basically the stats that I cited at the beginning? Secure finances, someone that will agree with me on how to raise kids, and someone that will be a nice accessory that I can wear, you know? So both the men and women, I just want to lovingly challenge you, brothers and sisters, but let's move on to what the guy is called to do. With his headship, with his responsibility, love your wives. <laughs> I'm so glad God said that. You know, because uh, men could do duty and we could say, well, this is about sanctification and this is about my wife becoming. Yes, all that is true. But you're, you must love your wife. And guess what? How do you know if you're loving your wife? In general, she'll feel it. She'll feel loved, actually. And so we want to love in a way where our spouse feels loved by us. But what does that love look like? Two things. I promise we're rounding third and going home. 
It's sacrificial love. Christ gave himself up. What did Christ give up? What were some things that Christ gave up? Speak to me, Presbyterians. What were some things that Christ gave up? <laughs> Speak it up. Come on. He gave his life. His home. Comfort. Power. Y'all are smart. I mean, it's, it's glory, right? Now, and so you want to ask yourself, am I doing that for my spouse? Does she feel like I have given up glory, power, and comfort for her? Maybe it's the glory of a career. You know, I could have had this job, but I didn't take it because of the hours. You know, maybe it's the comfort just of my own life and how I like things to run, and I don't want to get into a dangerous place with our intimacy. We need to ask ourselves, you know, what does it look like for me to nourish and cherish her like I do myself. You know, we are such comfort-driven people. You know, I, for me, it's like, is this thing on 72? I mean, it's not on 72. In fact, Kara's probably so tired, I walk in here and I'm like, is it warm in here? You know, is it warm in here? Some of you are warm, I know. Some of you are cold. Uh, but the point, you know, it, and we have such a temptation. I, I laugh. You know, men are not very noticeable with details unless they're grilling or making sandwiches. I mean, I, I, I had this really funny experience. Okay, I'm stereotyping now, but give me a little room. Stereotyping. I, I was sitting in the subway one day, and I, I almost laughed out loud. I was sitting there, and three different guys came in, and the way they talked about building their sandwich was just a uh, little bit. That's it. And you, and you see this woman, she's like, pickles, you know, mayonnaise. You know, it's just so you know that you can be attentive and you can cherish. And you can nourish things. I have all sorts of things I'm very careful to nourish. My guitar, my free time, what I might like to eat or drink. What does it look like to turn that on your spouse and go, I'm going to love her as I love my own body. I'm going to ask myself, am I as familiar with her wants as I am my own, her visions, her dreams? Because what did Christ do? He laid down His life so His bride would flourish so the church, so you would be at your prime strength, that your gifts were firing, the pistons were firing, you were at your emotional health and physical health. He laid his life down so you would be at that strength. And that's what a husband role for his wife is. So that he might in the end, and this is this quote that don't turn to now, but I have it in the front, where, you know, uh, again, another great Tim Keller quote that says, falling in love is basically saying, I want to be part of what God is going to make you. And one day, I'm going to be there, and maybe as you're being glorified, He's going to say, Hoburg, okay, Meg's up. And I get to see what I was part of and her becoming who she and she seeing me. This is the vision of what God intends. It's a tall order. None of us can do it. I mean, you know, like singleness, marriage is hard. I mean, you know, it's one of these things where you're just in the weeds so much you can barely see the sunshine above you. But God is making something beautiful through the everyday, through the muck. If I was clever enough, I'd come up with some illustration about how something is just really dirty and rough and you can't see it, and then all of a sudden it's beautiful. But you get the point. This is what the Lord has attended for marriage. And so, a rather long sermon tonight on marriage to say, Let's renew our minds, whether we're single, called to singleness, or whether we're called to marriage. Let's enjoy our marriage with Christ.
And let's take our lead from that. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the way that you love us. Please teach us to love one another that way. In Christ's name, amen.